The Gospel of Mark, it is designed to get us asking a single question. It's designed to get us asking, who is Jesus? And if you walk through the Gospel of Mark like we're doing as a church, you're bound to hit moments where you start wondering, who is this Jesus? What am I supposed to do with this passage? And a quick glance at our passage today at the end of Mark 9 and the beginning of Mark 10, it's a little intense if we're honest. How does this passage help answer the question, who is Jesus? You know, we jump from children to excluding people to sin and hell to divorce and then back to children. If this is your first time at St. Peter's, let me say this. It was nice knowing you. Uh, <laughs> but honestly, while we don't cover so many different and difficult topics in a single sermon, I'm really glad you're here today. I don't want to be presumptuous, but if I were you, I would want to know how does a church talk about issues like this? Because these issues matter. They're issues that we'll all face. And I would want to know, does this church fall into the characters that we see on TV or is there something different here? And if you're exploring the Christian faith, uh, I hope you want to know, what does Jesus have to say about these things? And so while the topics we're exploring are on the controversial side, I hope that we'll address them in a way. Any questions that you want to ask or you still have some lingering thoughts? Uh, Roger is here. He'll be happy to answer any questions about hell and divorce. Uh, but honestly, I'm available after the service too, and I would love to meet you and maybe set up a time to chat further. With so much breadth in a single passage, there's no way we're going to be able to address every single topic in detail. And so I'm going to spend most of the time on the most difficult part of the passage. Because the most difficult part are red letter words. They're not the words of some pastor. They're not the words of some theologian. They're the words of Jesus Christ himself. And so as we consider what Jesus himself said, we have to ask ourselves, will we ask for eyes to see? Will we ask for ears to hear? Will we ask God to help us understand? Or will we take the more difficult parts of Scripture and ignore them altogether? Or will we take them and try to crush them down into something that's more palpable to us? So I want to invite you to enter into the tension of this passage this morning and to put your defenses on hold for a moment and to journey through it. Because here's the big idea at the heart of our passage. Kingdom of heaven, then to be healthy and thrown into hell. And we're going to wrestle with this big idea in three ways. We're going to look at rejection, failing, and the entry fee. So open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 9. It's on page 721 of the church Bible that you're handed in. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. So Mark chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 30. They went on from there. And passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he'll rise. But they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Our first point, reception. Just as uh, Jesus has just told the disciples plainly for the second time, no parables. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's up. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. And then surprisingly, I'm going to resurrect. 
And my life then is about serving and weakness and death. And so Jesus and the disciples, they're journeying to Capernaum and an argument begins, quietly though. And when they arrive, Jesus asks them, well, what were you discussing on the way? It's a deer caught in light sort of moment. Uh, the conversation would go like this. Well, we were arguing about who is the greatest. Oh, really, says Jesus. Yeah, you know, John has his flowing long hair. I got my brute strength. James has a sick fashion sense. What do you think, Jesus, asks Peter. Uh, but this isn't what unfolds. Mark says they kept silent. A deer caught in light kind of moment. They know they're caught, and their silence shows that they know what they want is in conflict with what is right. Even though they're silent, though, Jesus knows what they were arguing about. And so he says in verses 35 through 37, If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured not saying you are to serve the least of these. The word for servant here, it refers more to personal devotion than the reality of a slave, but it does include servitude and slavery, but it's more of a free choice, a personal devotion to it. But deep down, deep down in our honest, honest, honest place, we think, how could anyone possibly be satisfied with a life of servitude and service. Plato even wrote, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Julia responded, let me show you. Uh, it's a wife joke that didn't land, it's okay. But Plato resonates more with us than Jesus, doesn't he? But Jesus, he's turning this logic on its head and he's saying, if you want to be great, Make your personal devotion to the greatness of others. That's what will make you great. And then he pushes the challenge further still. Verse 37, he takes a child, puts the child front and center and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. And it's easy to think, oh, shucks, Jesus. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Like Jesus is a good guy. But children in the ancient world were viewed so much differently than how they are today. Children were actually considered non-persons. They didn't have personhood. And they had no legal rights whatsoever. And so this isn't about the innocence or sweetness of children that we celebrate in our culture. This was about their complete lack of status altogether. So when Jesus says, serve the least, seek the greatness of others, and he says, wait for it. Here's the least. Children, non-persons. If you want to be great, don't just pour your personal devotion into the greatness of others, but into the greatness of the overlooked, into the greatness of those on the fringes of society, into the greatness of non-persons who can give you nothing in return, who can be of no social leverage to you. Pour yourself out for the greatness of others. So what would be the equivalent of children in our day? Jean Vanier uh, sets a, an example for us. He founded an international community now known as LARC, uh, LARC uh, in 1964. 
And he's a renowned theologian and philosopher. But he devotes his time and his energy and his personal devotion to these communities that serve the developmentally disabled. And in most cases, the extremely developmentally disabled. And he's helped establish over 30 of these communities around the world. And so he's tangibly caring for the least of these. He's not serving academia alone, but he's on the ground serving the least, serving the people that society says. Heather Teresa of Calcutta serves as another example. She's by no means perfect, but she gave her life to serve and care for the Dalits, known as the untouchables. She touched those who were seen as human garbage, those who had no status, the non-persons. What do Mother Teresa and Jean Vanier have in common? They're both Roman Catholic, so we all need to convert. Uh, <laughs> they understood what it means to be great. It means to receive Jesus by receiving the very least. And so the very least today could be the developmentally disabled. It could be the Dalits. It would be most certainly refugees who have no status anywhere. And now we can talk about these examples, the Mother Teresa's, the Jean Vanier's, and, and we can look at these examples of people serving and say, this, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. We can admire them, it's pleasant to think about, but it's much, much, much more difficult to put into action. The disciples, they hear Jesus, but do they understand? Well, surely you know the disciples of, at this point. Of course not, no. Immediately, Jesus, he's... he's Cast this vision of a countercultural society. And what happens? Verse 38, John pipes up. He says, okay, Jesus, we get this whole serving the least thing, but let me run a scenario by you because what we did here was spot on, right? This guy, he's casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't following, and note the word choice, us. He wasn't following us. John doesn't say he wasn't following you, he says, no, he wasn't following us. He wasn't a part of our in-group. He wasn't on our circle. He wasn't like us. He was perhaps different. And so we excluded him, even though he was doing things in your name. That was legit thing to do, right, Jesus? That was cool. They're not getting it. And so Jesus says in verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because, they, because you belong to Christ, by no means will lose their reward. In other words, what are you doing? Even the most insignificant act, if someone was doing that because you belong to me, that matters. Giving water in his name matters. But did this time of Q&A help them understand? Nope. Look at chapter 10, uh, verses has elapsed. And the crowd were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. To such belongs the kingdom of God. The disciples are rebuking people for doing the very thing Jesus had just commanded them to be doing. Serving the least. But in their pursuit of greatness... On their terms, they foolishly are keeping the least away from the kingdom of God and they're excluding others in the process. You see, like the disciples here, there's something going on in us, deep in us, in our hearts, 
that inhibits us from living out these commandments of Jesus. And it makes living like Jean Vanier or Mother Teresa feel out of reach. Jesus, he just gives the command. Why isn't it as simple as us just doing what he says? Why can't we do it? And this brings us to our second point, failing. Look at chapter 10, verses 2 through 9. It's a bit of a topic shift. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test Jesus, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. I'm not going to be able to get into all the nuance of a theology of divorce or even a theology of remarriage. Uh, we're going to be offering an equip and build that will cover that very topic in, a, in the near future. But here's what I will say. If you've been divorced, which I know people in this room certainly have, been, you are not beyond God's grace. If your marriage is falling apart and it seems like you're barely holding it together, you are not beyond God's grace. If you need help, ask for help. Talk to us. We're here. Uh, the recovery process of a marriage falling apart or to help you try to figure out how could we maybe hold this together and salvage what remains. But we want you to know we'll do so in a gracious and loving and compassionate way and that you don't need to be overcome by shame if this is your reality, but rather we want to invite you to come and, and bring it into the open so that we can walk alongside you. But the truth is this. This passage isn't really about divorce. Divorce is a symptom that takes us to the root issue. The Pharisees, the sticklers of God's law, they want to know if divorce is okay. And so Jesus says, well, you're the experts. What does Moses, what does the Torah have to say about divorce? And so they say, it's allowed. But look carefully at what Jesus says next. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. An exemption law wouldn't be necessary if your hearts weren't hard. If you didn't have a hard heart, that leads you to sin. That leads you to distrust others, to betray each other, to keep secrets and fracture your relationship. You wouldn't even be asking the question, is divorce okay? Because divorce was never God's intention in creating the universe. God created the universe to be in unity, to be one, to be in harmony. And graciously, God has given us commands to help deal with all of our brokenness in the world. But what we see here is that commandments cannot deal with the hardness of heart. Because if they could, we wouldn't need exception laws. We wouldn't need an exception to God's ultimate intention for us. If I say to Maggie and Ansley, my daughters, don't touch that. They're definitely going to touch it. And whatever I'm trying to preserve, it is going to be covered in grimy children hands with germs, you know. In the same way, when God says don't get divorced, it's not going to stop people from getting divorced. Think about our passage so far. The disciples, they cannot do what Jesus asks of them because they have hard hearts. They're still in this pursuit of their own greatness. They're excluding people and even the very people God told them to welcome. 
the Pharisees. They can do the law. They uphold the law, but it can't deal with the hardness of their hearts. Here they are just testing Jesus to see if he's okay or not. Hard hearts, they're causing relational breakdown and discord and even sometimes divorce. And none of these things, none of these things are what God envisions for us. It's not what he has for humanity. And we love the vision, if we're honest. Who doesn't like the idea of greatness in God's kingdom? If we could all pour ourselves out into loving and serving the very least, it would revolutionize our city. It would revolutionize the world. And in Vancouver, we value these things. We say we should serve. We should do that. That's beautiful. Who doesn't like the idea of a world where divorce isn't a reality? Of course that would be great. But whatever it, it is that God says, whatever it is that God sees, in some capacity, we fail to attain it. Maybe it's because we feel like it's just too much for us to actually do. Or maybe because it just runs contrary to our own plans and desires. Or maybe it just seems too simplistic, too beyond reach, and so we don't even try. But the issue isn't God's vision. The issue isn't his instructions or commandments. If we can't do what we, God says to do, if we can't do what Jesus commands us to do, but how could we ever be expected to enter into the kingdom of God? The place where God reigns perfectly. The place of his presence unseparated from us in its entirety. How can we ever enter into that place if we can't even do what's required to receive it? Which brings us to our last point, the entry fee. And just to relieve your conscience, if you're thinking, wow, those first two points were fast, this one is twice the length. Uh, the middle of our passage today, the middle of our passage is the clue. Look at chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Chapter 9, 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It'd be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If we were to take this passage literally and do exactly what it says, this would be a very, let's say, misshapen room. It would be a strange-looking room. It would be considered gruesome and maybe even grotesque. Jesus employs this hyperbole to make visible what is invisible in us. The room as it stands is just as deformed and marred by sin. It is just as grotesque because of the hardness of our hearts. Jesus starts out by saying, if you cause someone to sin, if you encourage their behavior or you invite them into a behavior of sin or if you redefine sin and say that's not really a sin, if you cause someone to sin, it's better for you to drown with a massive millstone around your neck. 
In the ancient world, these stones could weigh up to a ton. If you cause someone to sin, it's better that you wrap a ton around your neck and drown. Why is it better for us to die than to cause someone to sin? And then before we can even catch up, Jesus goes on. Cut off a foot or a hand or an eye if it causes you to sin. Why? A glimmer of light. It's just a little bit of light. Maybe sneaking through the curtains or an open door on the floor. There's so much more light beyond the curtains. You're just getting a glimmer, a picture of something bigger. Sin is the glimmering of hell. Sin is the glimmering of hell. When we exclude and refuse to accept those we deem as not worth our time or insignificant, when we ignore the homeless or express our annoyance at baristas, it's the glimmering of hell. When we lust with our eyes, when we look at what we shouldn't look at, when we covet what others have, when we desire someone else's body, when we look at porn, when we wish we had someone else's boyfriend or girlfriend or wife or children or school or job or clothes, it's hell peeking through the curtains of time. When we harm others with our hands by what we do, uh, whether we hit or scream or curse or abuse or hurt others, when we underpay our workers, when we steal from impoverished nations, when we pollute the planet and watch animals dying because of our impact globally, it's just a glimmering of hell. When our feet lead us and others into error and overindulgence, when you drink until you puke, when you eat until you feel ill, when you spend so much the house that it's constantly in chaos and frenzy and you schedule so many activities that you don't even have time to pray and you lose sleep to stay up and watch show after show, it's a glimmering of hell. And I get it. You want to say, stop. Like, this is the stuff we don't want to talk about. We have worked so hard as a society not to talk about these things. Focus on the good because it's way too easy to see these things. Exactly. Exactly. We've worked hard to not see what the glimmerings truly are. It's all a glimmering of hell. Life outside of God's intention a little sample of something much greater beyond the veil of time. And all these glimmerings show us we're heading toward divorce with God, which is hell. C.S. theologian, he puts the reality of hell this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Now the, the idea and of hell might seem old and archaic. I imagine most of us in this room have a tough enough time imagining eternal life, imagining a reality of heaven, the resurrection, but hell... Why does Orthodox Christianity throughout the ages insist on this reality? Because Jesus talks about it. And he's not talking about just a mindset. He's talking about an eternal reality. Look at what he says in our passage here. Hell is a place of unquenchable fire. The worm there does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
Three times, Jesus says, we can be thrown into hell. It's helpful to know that the word he uses for hell here is Gehenna, which was a valley running south and southwest uh, outside of Jerusalem. And it had a, a bad history. For a long time in ancient history, it was a place of child sacrifice for the god Molech. It was a place of idolatry and false worship. And over time, it became a rubbish heap. And so in Jesus' day, it was pervaded with garbage and maggots and the stench of decay, and fire was smoldering day and night. Gehenna. Now, this is the imagery that Jesus uses also in the context of a hyperbole. You know, he's, he's using dramatic things. Hyperbole Jesus just used about eyes and hands and feet being removed was to make visible what's invisible to us. In the same way, Jesus is employing physical and uncomfortable images people could actually see to make visible what is invisible to us, the reality of hell. Now hear me. No one, no one on this side of eternity can or should speak with complete certainty about what hell is and isn't. Here's what I do know. Dante's Inferno has so poorly shaped the Western imagination in pictures of hell that we over-exaggerate it. It's not dancing pitchforks. It's not, you know, torture. It's not God delighting in, in doing evil things. Whatever hell may be, here's what we can know for certain from Scripture. It is an awful reality. It's very real, and it's very dire. And this cannot be a doctrine without tears and compassion. Because when we speak of the reality of hell, we all have friends and family and people that we know in mind who don't know Jesus, who don't want to know Jesus. It cannot be a personal doctrine for us or, sorry, cannot not be a personal doctrine for us. To speak, then, of hell without compassion is an affront to God. Because God speaks of this reality to have compassion on us and to draw us into the kingdom of God. But here's what Scripture tells us with certainty. Outside of the mercy of Jesus Christ, outside of his lordship, we are all on a path to hell. And how do we know this? Because our sin, our sin is the glimmering of hell. Divorce from God. But we're the ones filing the papers. It truly would be better for you to cut off a hand or cut off a foot, pluck out an eye, than end up divorced from God, hearing him say, thy will be done. You want to live life outside without me? Go for it but I'll also be gone completely. You see, on this side of eternity, God hasn't left us to ourselves yet. We still have glimpses of compassion and goodness and mercy, and it's because God in his love restrains our sin. Hell is him removing himself and saying, 
have at it. Thy will be done. But there will be no love. There will be no goodness. There will be no compassion. There will be no mercy. There will be no grace. Why? Because those things are my life. They come out of me. And you will not have me. Which is why Jesus is imploring us. It's better to be maimed and enter the kingdom of heaven than to be healthy and thrown into hell. But here's the problem. Maiming ourselves won't bring us into the kingdom of God. Even if we cut off a hand or a foot or pluck out an eye, it only deals with the symptom, not the disease. We still have hard hearts. And if we pluck out our hearts, and it is bringing us to death. And you can read this passage and you can say, look, I'm going to serve more. I'm going to really do it. I'm going to maim my self-centeredness. I'll seek true greatness. I'm going to be a servant to the least. I'm going to leave behind all my selfish desires. And I'm going to throw myself into serving the people God calls me to serve. And you could be a perfectly uh, fine and upstanding and good and pious humanitarian for the rest of your life. But it wouldn't mean that God will receive you. But wait. Didn't we just read scriptures that said, whoever receives someone in my name receives me and receives the Father? Do you see? Jesus says you need to do these things in my name. Not on your own. It has to be in his name. Jesus is making it clear to his disciples and to us, we cannot do these things without him. And so when it comes to the kingdom of God and to hell, something has to be done for us if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. We can't help but be little hellions. We're born with a proclivity to sin. We walk away from God to do life on our own terms, but we're not God and we're not kings and we're certainly not saviors. And because we can't deal with our own sin, something has to be done for us. And because we can't deal with our own sin, even the pursuit of caring and seeking the well-being of others and lifting them above us will be tainted and even torched by sin. And this is why Jesus came into the world. This is why Jesus came into the world. Not to affirm all of our goodness, but to deal with the absence of it. This is why he says the Son of Man must do these things. He must come and be rejected and die and then rise. There is an entry fee into the kingdom of God that we cannot pay because we are the faithless party in this marriage. God could rightly issue a divorce certificate and be perfectly just and good. He could say, I'm done with you. You're adulterous. You're immoral. You're unfaithful. You continue to live without me, so go have at it. But even when we're unfaithful, God remains faithful. When there's a price we cannot pay, God pays it. His body, Jesus' body, is maimed for us beaten, bruised, and disfigured, and given for us. He dies. He descends to the dead. Or as the creed truly teaches in 1 Peter, he descends into hell. Jesus is maimed, not so that he can enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he's maimed and then thrown into hell. Jesus goes to the place we deserve so that we can enter the place that we do not deserve. 
Jesus, he sees the non-persons, the sinners, the untouchables. He sees us. He sees us, and he doesn't ignore us or throw us into the garbage heaps of Gehenna. He serves us. He serves the undeserving. And he serves us by not leaving us in the glimmers of hell. He saves us from that reality. He saves us aimed by sin, but healthy, full, and abundant lives. He welcomes us like little children. He opens his arms so that we can be with him forever. And here we see the true example of greatness, the ultimate example on display. Jesus receives the least of these. He receives us. Jesus receives those who have absolutely nothing to offer him, who deserve nothing from him. And this, this is just a glimmer of heaven's love. Think about how profound the love we see is on the cross. It is just a glimmering of the love of God in eternity seeping into time to save us. Which is why our passage ends with chapter 10, verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Often we have these tranquil images of children in our mind. They're peaceful, serene, well-behaved. That's not reality. When a child wants something, they take it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you said no. It doesn't matter if they own it or if someone else is using it. They will take it if they have the opportunity and they want it. In all of this, and I realize I'm proposing a paradigm, a view of the world that is just so different than what we encounter day by day in our city. I realize that I'm calling you to a vision of life that part of you wants to resist. But please hear me on this. I'm trying my best to call us all, myself included, to look at the messages of the world that tell us this is all there is. Or the messages that try to that tell us, you know, God's just a really nice guy in the end and it'll all work out. And say, look, I don't want to be hard-hearted. I don't want to be uncompatible. Like, show lack of compassion to people. I want to love people well. And I, I want to wrestle with what Jesus says. How are we going to respond to what he says? Are we going to just ignore it and just say, you know what, that, that's the church. They're wrong. No, this is Jesus. This is red letter words. To the best of our knowledge, this is what he said. Not my sermon, the text. Or will we be like little children and just grab a hold of something we don't deserve because it's being offered it's being freely offered to all of us he says you don't deserve anything I did for you but guess what I did it because I love you and I want to redeem you and I don't want you to spend an eternity separated from me I want you to have an eternity seeing life as it was meant to be exploring the unending depths of God's life in endless time this is why I came into the world. This is why my body was maimed, so you can enter into a healthy life and eternal life. You see, it's only when we enter the kingdom like little children, when we realize we can do nothing, that we have to just receive a gift, that we have nothing to offer, no status, no prestige, no good works, that we were non-persons to God. It's only when we accept that and we receive and take what Jesus offers us 
that then we can receive others like we were received. Then we can live lives like Jean Vanier or Mother Teresa because we're not doing it to be accepted. We're doing it because we've been accepted. We're not doing it out of obligation. We're doing it out of personal devotion to Jesus and his desires. And then, and only then, rather than our lives being a glimmer of hell, they become a glimmer of heaven's love. So reach out and take a hold of Jesus. And then you can begin to receive others like he received you.